Another year, another recall effort in California. There's a long string of them over the last century. We'll get a history lesson. And how should history judge technology's role in the pandemic response? Did Silicon Valley make a difference? Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nigel Duara in Los Angeles. And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And Nigel, were you anywhere in the state when Gavin Newsom just started throwing out bags of money this week? You know, I was not under Governor Santa Claus Newsom's sleigh when he was tossing out all those goodies to the good boys and good girls around California. But I did read a lot this week, Nicole, on where that money is going to be going. The state's got a big surplus and he's trying to get out stimulus checks. Exactly. He did stimulus checks earlier this year just for a smaller group, lower income, undocumented Californians. Because of the size of the surplus, he is handing out even more money, which, you know, for a politician facing a recall is not a terrible thing. That's a great way to keep people voting for you. He's just handing bags of cash. But Nicole, can we talk about the bear? Do we have to talk about the bear? <laughs> We have to talk about the bear for a second. Okay, fine. We can talk about the bear. <laughs> this, of course, is the bear used as sort of a campaign mascot by Republican candidate John Cox in the recall election. Now, you may have heard, Nigel, this bear's name is Tag. I saw him in person. He loves rotisserie chicken and cookies. Same. Who doesn't, right? And according to the New York Times, he cost the Cox campaign $6,000 a day. Honestly, though, I thought it would be a lot more to rent a bear and feed him. But, you know, the bear might be the most controversial part of this recall so far, right? My mom hates that they're using the bear. And I hear about that bear all the time. I do, too. I had PETA and all kinds of people in my mentions when I was live tweeting about the bear. But honestly, sometimes, Nigel, it feels like recall efforts in the state are kind of like Groundhog Day, right? It doesn't matter who is in office. They got to face a recall. It's like a rite of passage, right? And that's really not far off from reality. Yeah, it's a lot more fun to say no to a politician or go home or get out of here, I guess, than it is to say, sure, welcome to the governor's mansion. So I guess I understand it. For more on this, we're going to be joined now by two of our colleagues who've been reporting on various aspects of the recall. Cap Radio's Mike Haggerty did a fascinating story on the history of recalls in California. And Laura Rosenhall from Cal Matters is with us to explain the process of this year's recall effort and what happens from here. Laurel, Mike, welcome to both of you. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks so much. Laurel, let us start with you. Walk us through where we are in the recall process right now. I know counties had to certify recall signatures, and that's been done. So what's the next step? Yeah, we're now in a period where voters can change, basically change their mind if they want to. They can contact their local elections officials and basically have their name removed. So it's kind of a signer's regret, I guess. What's the chance of enough people doing that to change the validity of the recall? Like, how thin is the margin now? And could enough people take their names off that, you know, it, it's no longer a valid recall? It seems really unlikely they'd have to have more than 100,000 people take their names off and, you know, change their minds. There is a, a small campaign to kind of try to do that, but it's really unlikely because the names of the people who signed the ballot are basically secret. They can be known only to the campaign itself and the election officials who are you know, validating the signatures. And so there's no way to target those people for any kind of campaign to 
um, say to them like, hey, did you really mean to sign this? Do you have second thoughts? So they're trying to go to court and get the names, but the whole thing seems really unlikely to um, to make much of a difference. And even the governor is saying that he's planning that this thing is going to be on the ballot. That makes sense. And then if we move ahead, the state gives the estimate of how much this thing is going to cost. Do we know what recall elections usually cost? I know, of course, there was one in the mid 2000s. The governor initially months ago last year said that he thought it would be about eighty one million dollars. Now some local elections officials are coming out with this massive price tag of $400 million. But a lot of things have changed with elections in part because of the pandemic and all of the rules on sending everyone a ballot. So this election will be one of those where everyone gets a ballot in the mail. So obviously that's a cost. Also, a lot of counties have moved to this voting center model where people have more days when they can vote They're They don't necessarily have to go to a polling place, but then these voting centers are open for more days. So there's all these different options, which changes the cost. Uh, Mike, let's bring you in here. You did a look back at previous recall elections here in California. I think most voters probably remember the recall effort against Governor Gray Davis when Arnold Schwarzenegger booted him from office. But that wasn't the first effort here to recall the governor. How far back does this go? A lot farther than I ever imagined, Nigel. And what, <laughs> how, how I got on this trail was I was having a conversation with a family friend, well-educated, intelligent person who said, boy, you know, ever since the Gray Davis recall, I mean, I don't know who did what to make that even possible. And I'm like, well, you don't think that they actually created the recall and then did this. There's a history here. The advantage that I had is I'm a native Californian, and I remember growing up that there were recall petitions against governors. I just never kept track because they never made it to the ballot until 2003 against Gray Davis. So that's what put me on this trail. And I come to find out that the recall is actually very much a California invention. The first recall of any elected official anywhere in the United States happened in California in 1903. Of course it was here. It was not only here, it was Los Angeles. And it was an outgrowth of a progressive movement in California politics. At that time, California was a very Republican state. Progressives felt that they weren't able to get any kind of traction or even attention at City Hall or at the state legislature. So since that time, how often does California decide that its politicians have got to go? How how many folks have effectively been recalled? Well, only six have ever actually been removed from office, but there have been 179 attempts. Uh, Ten years after Los Angeles, other cities had enough other cities in California had adopted recalls that the state finally said, okay, fine, we're in. And most of the state recalls have been against state senators and assemblymen. It was 25 years between the people of California being told, yes, you can recall an elected official, and the time they felt they needed to use it against a sitting governor. And that governor was a guy named Colbert L. Olson. And how did it work out for Mr. Olson? Olson was an interesting guy. He was very liberal, very progressive. He was the first governor of California as a Democrat to be elected in 44 years. But Olson surprises everybody on Inauguration Day when the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court says, put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand and say, and Olson said, I'm not going to do that. Uh, The Bible's poppycock. 
It's nineteen. Wow. It's nineteen thirty nine, and a California <laughs> governor has just outed himself as an atheist. <laughs> Man, oh man, that is one way to get recalled. Well, that and that that did spark a recall, and it never made it to the ballot. There was another one. It never made it to the ballot. There was a third one, and it got closer because it was funded by Standard Oil, but it didn't quite make it either. So, Laurel, let us come back here to the 21st century. What else could we possibly see, and what's the rest of the slate of candidates look like right now? There's going to be a lot of people running for governor, and, um, and everyone sort of sees it as an opportunity to get a lot of publicity, whether or not they, you know, think they're going to become governor. Of course, Caitlyn Jenner is the candidate. Um, she is, you know, a, a Republican who's never held elected office, but has a lot of fame from being an Olympic athlete, um, a transgender activist, and a member of the Kardashian clan. So reality TV exposure there. There's Kevin Faulkner. He's the Republican former mayor of San Diego. There's a Republican former congressman named Doug Osi who's in the mix. But the field will likely evolve a lot as um, this thing sort of goes through the process. And once it's officially qualified for the ballot, there there could be a lot more candidates jumping into the ring. Sure. And, and the actual ballot, it's, is it going to have two parts where it'll say, one, do you want to recall? And two, who do you want? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a two question ballot. So the first question is a yes or no question. Yes is yes, you want to recall the governor, get rid of Gavin Newsom. No is you want to keep the governor, keep Gavin Newsom in place. The second question is if the governor is recalled, in other words, if more than 50% of people vote yes on that first question, then who should replace Newsom? And Newsom's name cannot appear by law, cannot appear on that slate of candidates. So there will be a long list of candidates to choose from, and people can pick a candidate regardless of whether they vote yes or no on the first question. They can still pick any candidate they want on the second question. So this is the part that I'm curious about. We get these ballots, and if 50% plus one say, I guess I want to recall, the actual winner doesn't have to get 50% plus one of the vote. Walk me through that. It's just a plurality? Exactly. It is one of the quirks of the recall election, and it is why Republicans feel like they might have a chance of winning. You know, California hasn't elected a Republican statewide in more than a decade, and the voting trends have just moved more and more heavily to the left. But in, in a recall election, if more than half the people say yes, they want to recall, then the winner of that second question is whoever gets the most votes. And of course, the more people who run, the more that splits up the votes and the more that you create the just mathematical possibility that someone could win with you know not that many votes. Hypothetically, 20, 30% of the vote could be enough to, to win this thing. So Mike, this just kind of seems to be what happens in California now. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, that's and that's the other thing that I found in in researching this piece is the only uncommon thing in this is that it's actually making it to the ballot. Every governor of California since 1960, 61 years, has faced at least three recall petition drives. Jerry Brown sets the record at 12, but then he was in <laughs> office twice as long as anybody else. Right. I mean, you know, take the most innocuous 
governor of California that you can think of. Who, who would that be? George Duke Magian? Duke Magian faced recall drives. It's what's happened is and this isn't my opinion. This is uh, Professor David Schechter, who I interviewed. He's a recall historian, wrote a great paper on it. What's happened here is that this is a device that was basically invented by progressives to fight corruption and to throw people out of office. What's happened now is it's become, and this really goes all the way back to 1960 and Pat Brown, Jerry's dad, every governor since has faced these recall drives. None of them are for malfeasance in office. None of them are for crimes. None of them are for the inability of the person to serve. It's people who don't like them and want another shot before the next four-year election cycle. You know, the more you talk about it, the more it just sounds like homecoming court. No matter what, no matter what, we will have to do all this again in 2022, right? Yeah, you're going to have you're going to have a back to back election cycle. That sounds fun. Laurel. Um, hey, I know you cover the Capitol. How delighted are you to cover two back to back years of flyers and mailers and mudslinging? Oh, hey, when 20. 20- 21 started, I was just like, wait a second, we just got over our pandemic election year. And now we're heading into another pandemic election year. And yes, next year, hopefully election year, no pandemic. (laughs) And that, folks, is why I do not cover politics. Mike Haggerty of Cap Radio, Laura Rosenhall of Cal Matters. Thank you guys so much. Learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks. So a recall campaign coming up. Nicole, are you looking forward to covering this? Oh, I'm super excited to do this in November and again next November and then November two years after that. I love this stuff, Nigel. (laughs) Well, coming up, Silicon Valley likes to think of itself as the key to our collective futures, the epicenter of life solutions. So clearly, it would have a major role to play in, say, a global pandemic, right? But did it? Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Nigel Duara. So, Nicole, as we said before the break, Silicon Valley fancies itself as indispensable in just about every single aspect of our lives. But, aside from a certain electric car paper billionaire on SNL, <clears throat> they've, been <laughs> they've been pretty quiet this last year. Now, I've used the heck out of Zoom. I have used a lot of Instacart. But that's from the before times, the times before the pandemic. I think most of us would have a tough time saying Silicon Valley really made much of a difference over the last year, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I guess so. Aside from, you know, DoorDash and and the very notable exception here of the medical world, I guess they made a vaccine and all that. Yeah, I guess coming up with a vaccine to a global pandemic is like fine. But is perception reality? Did tech actually go AWOL in a global crisis? If so, why? If not, what do we miss? We're joined by Josh Mendelson. He's a managing partner at the venture firm Hangar. He's worked in all manner of capacities around the tech world, from early stage startups to machine learning and mobile music applications. 
Josh spent four years at Google, where, among other things, he created the Google Disaster Response Program after Hurricane Katrina. And last year, he spearheaded the idea for a White House task force on using technology to fight the pandemic. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you to respond to a headline in the MIT Technology Review last April, about a month and a half into the crisis here in the States. It says, quote, the pandemic shows that the U.S. is no longer much good at coming up with technologies relevant to our most basic needs. The author David Rotman goes on to criticize what he calls the impotence of the most innovative place on Earth, Silicon Valley. Fair assessment or or was it too early to assess at that point? I would definitely offer to build off your very last point. It was too early at that moment in time. And yet I think what he missed is the role that technology plays in so much of what we do every day. And therefore, how in so many ways, both small and large, technology came to bear to help society rally to adapt to the circumstance of the pandemic, to rally to respond to the pandemic, to rally to actually build new technology and new innovations to help us find paths through the pandemic. And um, from my perspective, in in many ways, it's a great success. Weirdly, I actually don't love that notion of it's Silicon Valley, right? I think one of the things that has happened in many, in, in the last, let's say, decade and a half is technology stopped, particularly internet technology, stopped being the unique domain of this region, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I'd spent most of my career, and it became something that's far more national. Just by way of example, one of the companies that we work with partnered with Google and Facebook and many others, and built a set of tools to help epidemiologists model the spread of COVID-19 and what that would look like. And so Canberra got to the point where they were able to look two, three weeks in advance and help public health officials understand what changes need to be made and how they needed to accommodate uh, the rapid spread of, of the virus. You mentioned technology that we used in the pandemic that maybe we didn't even think about. It's just part of our everyday lives. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, I think one of the most important evolutions in the technology sector in the last two decades has been how to take really large, complicated data sets and use commoditized computational power. Think what you get from an Amazon Web Services or a Google Cloud platform where you can do lots of math again and again, far in excess of what a human could ever do or what you could do in an Excel spreadsheet to find insights, particularly when you think about how much data we had even early on in the pandemic around its spread and incidents and whatnot. It's a perfect application of that technology. And the fact that It initially allowed public health officials and epidemiologists and researchers around the world to to better understand the mechanisms that the virus was using to spread and and therefore the mechanisms that were needed to slow that spread. Um, It also now gives us the ability to recognize what return to work needs to look like, what the new normal ought to become. And it's entirely about statistics and those patterns and computers are incredibly useful there. Well, tell us about this effort to organize tech leadership last spring. How did that come about and who was involved? Over the last two decades, there have been all sorts of disasters worldwide, and we've always wanted to bring some of the tech we have at our disposal to bear. So when I was at Google, so much of that was around taking what we saw from Google Earth and later Google Maps and helping deploy it into the developing world when there were tsunamis and floods and and earthquakes, when we were starting to see that this was going to be 
um, something very real and something big. That same cohort of folks started organizing around what can we do to help? What are the things we can do to augment helping the government right now? federal, state, local, local probably in many ways being the most important layer there just because they had the most limited resources, um, but the highest ability to impact the spread of, of uh, the virus. And what were the tools and solutions that were off the shelf was, was number one, if that's what you want it to be. What can we bring to bear now? And what do we need to develop? Which became number two. So this tech group, uh, what was the involvement at the White House level and what kind of enthusiasm did you experience from them? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's no surprise to say that, uh, that the Trump White House had a, a pretty complicated relationship with, with COVID response. And I think it became all the more important for industry to recognize the very real truth that, particularly in the United States, it isn't the federal government that really has primary responsibility for solving disasters that have a far more regional and local component to it. So really, I think it became quite clear from a technological standpoint, if, if so much of what the technology industry broadly defined is good at is deploying service at scale and insight at scale, there really is no better audience for that than, than mayors right? or county commissioners, right? Your, your sort of smallest unit of governmental function is who responded. And regardless of how equipped the feds may or may not have been, uh, it was always gonna come down to, to county and city officials. So state and local governments had the reins. Um, but Josh, when I think of things I would have associated with the tech industry in the effort to cope with the pandemic, I think of things like, could some of those big brains have redesigned supply chains? Could they have come up with you know, testing apps or ways to at least schedule people. Same for vaccinations. Why hasn't anything like that happened or has it? Yeah, I think there are many cases of where it has. I think New York State, where I live, um, has done some really amazing work in trying to be prepared. And some of it was work they had done around tracing. And the reality is the pandemic grew so fast that digital tracing wasn't actually going to be the highest value work. And they did a really good job of, of working with their tech partners uh, to go in and start thinking about well, what's going to happen when folks are vaccinated. And the New York State, you know, it's somewhat well known, is going to be the first to roll out the vaccine passport. And, and that was totally built with the support of a number of technology companies, boldface names and small startups alike. You know, I think in so many ways, technology always needs to be an enablement. It needs to be a tool. It can't be the solution. Uh, I think then when there are times where technology is looked at to solve problems is when it becomes too divorced from the realities on the ground and what's really needed. And, and COVID is, has, has proven to be such a human disaster. And therefore, to suggest that technology could fix a pandemic, I think, would be to put too much on the technology and to be perfectly honest, take too much responsibility away from public officials. So Josh, if God forbid we end up going through something like this again, which scientists say we probably will, what would you like to see happen immediately from the tech world at the onset of a similar crisis? What's the most effective lesson to take away here? From my perspective, the, this pandemic has taught us that data analysis, the technology that enables that is so vital in a pandemic. Pandemics are literally about how people move, 
how we go about engaging with each other and where we go after that. My fervent hope is that there can now be infrastructure put in place between now and the next pandemic that means that public health officials at every level of government are aware of what tools are available to them and further hone and refine what they do and what those mean and and therefore are trained and prepared um, when the next pandemic occurs. I think some of what we're already starting to think about uh, as a group tends to be around COVID variants and the fact that I think we all sort of understand more and more what these viruses look like and that they've actually never gone away. And given that that's the fact, it, it, it's much more uh, applicable to suggest that we ought to not think about it as a set of discrete disasters, but rather a recurring set of, of virus loads always being there in the background. And so let's track that. Let's understand it. And let's train on, on what the interventions ought to be. Josh Mendelson, thank you so much for being with us. Really interesting conversation. Thanks for having me, Nicole. So, Nigel, I guess we're just used to hearing tech companies toot their own horns every chance they get, right? So that's why their silence on efforts to fight the pandemic seemed so loud, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they could be louder about helping us fix the dang unemployment system. Well, that's California State of Mind for this week. Next time, a conversation with U.S. Senator Alex Padilla, California's former Secretary of State, appointed earlier this year to fill the seat vacated by Vice President Kamala Harris. Thanks for joining us, and Nigel, see you next time. See you next time, Nicole. How's that weather up in Sacramento? 95 degrees, baby. (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) Down here, it remains 75 and sunny. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health, 